0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We've been talking about Colossians, and last week we talked about Christ in us is the hope of glory. And we talked about the fact that That's part of the reason we do focus the way we do. We believe that in our groups, as we gather together, in those small groups, that's where discipleship really happens. What we do here on Sunday nights is great for worshiping together corporately. It's it's awesome, and I love doing it, and I appreciate those of you who come. Um, And gathering together on Sunday nights is great for kind of vision casting and teaching all together. But we really believe the heart of our discipleship happens in those groups. And part of the reason we believe that is because we believe that when scripture says Christ in us is the hope of glory, we actually believe that, that Christ works through us and grants us special gifts and, and, and what we call spiritual gifts, grants us the grace of God to share with each other. So that's what we talked about last week, that our hope for everything being okay is Christ and that, and that Christ in us is how we reflect that and how we teach that to each other. And we're moving towards that, that moment, history is moving towards that moment when the entire universe will be redeemed. So we're in Colossians chapter two, we're starting in verse five. And this is what Paul says at this point. just need to move something around on my screen here so I can see. There we go. He says, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. So one of the things we've been talking a lot about that is true in Colossians is that Paul is addressing a heresy called Gnosticism. And one of the things the Gnostics believe is that that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And therefore, anything done in the flesh doesn't really count or doesn't really matter. Um, And so Paul's suffering and more importantly, Christ's suffering and death on the cross weren't really relevant. That what is relevant is that just the spirit, what you do in the flesh has no meaning, um, and that what really saves you is just sort of a special enlightenment. Knowing Gnosticism literally means knowledge. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. So if you have this sort of special enlightened knowledge, then, then you're good. Um, and so Paul's been combating that, so he talks a lot about the body and he talks a lot about the flesh. And even at this point, he's kind of pointing out that, that we, this when he says, for though I am absent from you in the body. Of course it matters that he's not there in the body. Of course that's something that they can feel. Um, But he is saying, I am present with you in spirit. And remember, Paul, the reason he's not there is because he's in prison. And he has actually never met the Colossians. So he's just saying, I'm with you in spirit. We share, we're united in the same things, which is what? The hope of glory, which is Christ, Christ in us. And this idea that everything's going to be made okay, ultimately, by by Christ. He says, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And I think what he means here by disciplined, I think he really means the same thing as how firm your faith in Christ is. He means that in many ways, he's really excited that they are sort of, they're they're disciplined enough not to be led astray by sort of every wind of doctrine and every sort of idea that comes their way. Um, That that instead they understand um, uh, that Christ is everything and that beats all. And so this, this is where he starts. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. This is one of my favorite verses because he says something very simple and yet very, very powerful. This is, this is I think, one of the most important messages we can remember and that we often do forget. He says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And you think back, for those of you who have received Christ Jesus as Lord, those who've embraced the gospel, you know what that means. That doesn't mean that you worked really hard. It doesn't mean that you earned it. It doesn't mean that you got God's attention by doing all the right things. It doesn't mean that you performed these Herculean tasks or even these little tasks. You didn't receive Christ Jesus as Lord because you went to church. You didn't receive Christ Jesus as Lord because you attended a focus group even. You didn't receive Christ Jesus as Lord because you gave lots of money. He says, how did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Was it it an effort on your part? And as they think back, they realize, no, they heard a message. And they received the grace of God. And Paul is emphasizing this. Now, grace is a big word. We use it a lot. Every once in a while, I remind you of the working definition that we work with here at Focus. And honestly, we work with it because it's meant a lot to me over the years. And it fits, as I understand it, what we see in Scripture. There's a lot of definitions out there. I feel like some of them only capture kind of half the idea. So a lot of times we see that grace is defined as unmerited favor, unconditional love. Both are true. And we see that here when he says, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, because of his love for you, because of his favor for you, because of what he did, nothing you did, that's all true. But he also goes on to say, uh, but scripture goes on to say something else. It isn't just his unmerited favor, it's also his power. There's a lot of places that Paul says that the grace of God has the ability to give you what you need and to make you fruitful and successful with all the things that you need and give you the ability to minister to other people with power. So the grace of God in scripture is both his power and his love. It's It's his unmerited favor, but it's also his inexhaustible power. And so the definition we use often is to say that grace is God's power and his desire to do good to you. And the thing I love about that is it reminds us that that, those are integral to who God is. Those are part of his character and his his essence. And you can't, just like his power to do good to you, you can't change that. You can't make him more or less powerful. It's just as important to remember that his desire to do good to you, you can't make him more or less desire it. He isn't waiting for you to, to impress him so that he'll want to do good to you. The fact is, he wants to do good to you. He created us because he wanted to do good to us. And he continues to love us because he wants to do good to us. There's all sorts of verses. We're not going to go into all of them tonight. But there's all sorts of verses which remind us that he's the initiator always. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still enemies of the cross, Christ died for us. Um, There's even an Old Testament passage where it says, therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious unto you. And what's cool about that is you see the word therefore and you go, oh, well, let's go back and see why he longs to be gracious to them. And you think maybe if you go back, it says, because you guys have been so faithful and you've been really honoring him and you've been really loving him. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. That makes sense to us because that's how we operate, right? Let's just be perfectly honest. You're gracious to me. I'm more likely to be gracious to you, right? We should be beyond that, but we're not. That's just the way it is but that's not what happens in scripture. The words before, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you are not talking about how faithful the Israelites were. They're talking about how unfaithful the Israelites were. It says that he keeps trying to reach out to them, but they run from him. They say, let us run the other direction. Let's get on our horses and run from God. And then God says, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, which is crazy. Almost like his longing is greater because you're running from him. It's not really, but it's that sort of, that's a human way to understand it. The point of all this is that we are saved by the grace of God, by his desire to do good to us, by his power to do good to us. He's the one who chose to die on the cross for us. You did not reach out to him and say, I got a plan for you. Here's what you can do to help me out. He just did it. And then, so when Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, that's what he wants him to remember. You received Christ Jesus as Lord by your dependence on him, simply because he gave it to you. You simply surrendered to what he offered you. You simply said yes to the gift. And he says, now it doesn't change. And this is why I say, I think this is one of the most important messages of the Christian life. We sometimes get it in our heads that we enter the kingdom by grace, but we have to Be fruitful and and successful in the kingdom with something else. That after the grace, it becomes something else. Then it becomes all about our efforts and our our energies and our ability to do certain things and our ability to accomplish certain tasks. And yet, what Paul says here is, in the same way you received Christ Jesus as Lord, just as you did, not even kind of like you did, but in the same way, it says in some translations, continue to live your lives in him. He says, how do you grow? How do you live your lives in Christ? What does it mean to have Christ in you? How is that reflected? Is it by doubling down on your effort? No. It's by continuing to rely on the goodness and the power of God. By continuing to rely on his grace. He's going to give us some more words here that kind of tell us what that looks like. Right? It's not a passive thing to surrender to God. Surrendering is never exactly passive. It takes an intention. But it also isn't about your efforts. It's about God's desire to do good to you. You know, if, if you're given a gift, if somebody hands you a Christmas gift and you receive it as a gift, it, first of all, it's weird if you don't receive it as a gift. If you're like, how much was this? Let me write you a check. Okay. That's weird on a lot of levels because who writes checks anymore? But it's, it's just weird, right? Why would you do that? But the second thing is, if, they, if you were given the gift and then you were like, well, it's Christmas, so it makes sense you give me a gift. But then on the 26th of December, if you called your, the person who gave you the gift and said, I know you gave this to me yesterday. What do I have to do to keep it today? Then they'd be like, nothing. It's your gift. I gave it to you. And this is what Paul is saying. You weren't given eternal life by your works, by the things you did. You were given salvation by the grace of Jesus. And what do you have to do to keep it today? Just It's just there. It's yours. And so... Uh, So again, I think this is really important. There's always this temptation to add more, to say I need something else. Jesus was enough to get me in the door, but now I have to do something to earn it. But this is what he says. He goes on and he says this. He says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. So again, it's the same idea. What does it mean to be rooted? It means that's where it starts. That's where you were planted. That's where the growth began. That's how this even happened. A seed is planted in the dirt. It's rooted in the dirt. The soil is just there. The plant does not have to earn something from the soil. The soil is there for the plant. And Jesus is our soil. We were rooted in him. That is the source of our life. But then he says built up in him. He says he continues to be the source of our life. Remember how we talked about how Paul has been talking about for the last two chapters, one and a half chapters of Colossians so far, that Jesus is the center to everything. He's the the person that holds everything together. What's the same thing here? You will not grow apart from Christ. You will not grow by adding something to Christ. You will grow, you will be built up in him. In him. The more you sort of recognize that and surrender to that idea that it's all about him then the the more you'll see that. That's how you ought to live. You ought to live as if you're still dependent on him. I think the word dependence is a good one because the word dependence is one that's hard to boast in, right? We can talk about being righteous. We can even talk about having faith. But those are things we've learned in the Christian world to boast about. I have more faith than you do. I have more faith than most people. I have so much faith. I I am so righteous. But it's really hard to boast about dependence. I am so dependent upon the Lord. You know, we, especially in our culture where independence is sort of the sign of maturity. And yet what Paul says is in the Christian world, dependence on Christ is the sign of maturity. Now, that does go hand in hand with, with less dependence on people, right? Because people can't handle all your dependence. They're not created for it. So, but dependence on Christ should be increasing as we get more mature. It should be something that is more and more part of who we are. Until at the end of our days, we should be able to realize it's all we've got it's really all he's really all we've got so he says rooted and built up in him we never move on from jesus there's never a point where you're like yeah when i was an early christian it was all about jesus now i recognize it's about all these things i do for jesus or ultimately it's all about me which if you think about it is just a return to you being at the center of the universe which is the thing that we talked about moving away from last week recognizing that jesus is the center He goes on, he says, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened, he says, in the faith as you were taught. Strengthened in the faith. As you're built up in Christ, and again, even this is by dependence, not just by you somehow drumming up faith. He says, as you're rooted and built up in him, as you continue to live your life in dependence by the grace of God, the same way you got it, it strengthens you in your faith. You become strengthened in your faith. Faith is an interesting word, and I think it's got a couple of meanings here for Paul. One is that it is that dependence. It's that idea of trust. It's that idea of rest. The author of Hebrews and other New Testament authors often describe faith as an idea of rest. Recognizing God's completed the work and we don't have to. (laughs) And we just get to rest in it. It's an interesting way to live life. So some of it is that. Strengthening in your faith just in your trust that god is good that he can do it that his grace is real that his power to do good to you and his desire to do good to you really are enough and they really are inexhaustible and you'll really never run out of them but then he also says strengthen in the faith as you were taught now part of this means that yes they can look around and see other people who were faithful full of faith and and learn from that But I think it also indicates that Paul is doing something he often does. Often when he uses the word faith, he is also referring to the understandings of the gospel, the doctrines, the the core tenets. And so I think he's saying as as you are connected to Christ and dependent upon him, you'll find that those initial things you learned about the gospel, you'll be strengthened in them. You'll find they still are true. They don't stop being true. And this is so important because, again, the Gnostics were telling the Christians, the Colossians, they were telling them, you got a good start in the gospel, but now you need to understand more. Now you need to enter the advanced Christianity, advanced Christianity, the graduate degree 506 or whatever the number is. And Paul's saying, that's just nonsense. What happens as you mature is you just become strengthened in these things that you already know. You become more confident. Maybe there's, there's depths to the gospel you begin to understand, but it's not a movement away from the gospel. It is like moving from the shallow end to the deep end of a pool. You don't get out of the water. You just go deeper in. I also want to say this about being strengthened in the faith. This is something I've said before, and I, I like to say it because I think it's very clear, and it's very clear in opposition to what a lot of us have mistakenly picked up or been taught. Um, Sometimes in churches and certainly in our culture. And that's this. Christianity has never been in scripture. It has never been about doing good and avoiding evil. Christianity has never been about doing good and avoiding evil. Now, does God want you to do good? Yes. Does he want you to avoid evil? Yes. But that's not what Christianity is. That's a byproduct. Christianity is about trusting God. Because the truth is, the only way we know what's good is because of God. And the only way we know what's evil is as God points it out to us. It's anything that isn't God. It's anything that kind of leads us away from God. God is the center of all good. Every step we take away is a step towards evil. And so the only th- Christianity is about trusting God, not about doing good and avoiding evil. All sorts of people do good and avoid evil or try to, right? Right? You can be an atheist and try to do good and avoid evil. In fact, this is an argument atheists always make, is how dare you tell us we have no moral imperatives? How dare you tell us we can't do right and wrong? We totally are capable of that. And frankly, I would say to a degree, they are. Kind of to the same degree the rest of us are. (laughs) But scripture is also very clear that when it comes down to it, we're very bad at doing good and avoiding evil. After all of the years of history and all the things that have happened, you know, here we are. Somebody was just saying to me the other day in one of our groups, she was saying that, you know, she's, she's younger than I am, and the first sort of real face-to-face encounter with evil on a global scale that she encountered was 9-11. And she said, after 9-11, I thought, wow, that's so weird, and maybe we'll get back to normal. And then after that, there, there came the pandemic, and she was like, wow, this is really not great, but maybe we'll get back to normal. And 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 now we've got the, the Russia attacking Ukraine. And, and you say, you know, why is he doing that? And the only really good answer is because Putin seems to be an evil man. (laughs) These ideas of good and evil and and humanity being able to work our way to a place where where we are no longer wrestling with that, we're just bad at it. We all know this too, just in, in, in really simple ways. This is why bureaucracies become hard, not because bureaucracies are themselves evil or because bureaucracies are an attempt to make things confusing, but bureaucracies necessarily make rules. And we discover that we're really bad at making rules. And so we make rules, and then that rule doesn't work well, so then we have to make a rule to fix the rule that we made, and then we have to make a rule to fix the rule to fix the rule that we made. There's a reason we end up with a tax code, which is bigger than the Bible, bigger than the New Testament, I think I've heard, is because we don't don't know how to make rules. (laughs) We do our best, and we have to make them. I'm not an anarchist, but we're bad at it. So we try to do good, we try to avoid evil, but the fact is we're so bad at determining what's good and evil. Another way we know this is because it changes, doesn't it, from culture to culture? Look, regardless of where you stand politically on things, there are things today that as a culture we tend to say are good, but they were evil, but, they, but in the past we said they were good, and we look in the past and say they were just not as smart as we are, and that may or may not be true. But I think it also just shows we're fairly arbitrary. So Christianity has never been about figuring out good and avoiding evil. There's a very famous proverb that says, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge God and he will make straight your paths. It's about trusting God. You can go back to Genesis. You can see how this all works out, the whole dialogue about the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God doesn't want them to play with, and how that leads to the tree of life and the choice they make. It all comes to this idea that Christianity is not about doing good and avoiding evil. It's about trusting God. Now, if you really trust God, I mean, if you really trust God, he will lead you into good and he'll lead you away from evil because that's what he does. In fact, he'll do it much better than if you try to do it yourself. So he says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, in the same way, by the grace of God, dependence on him, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And then he says, one way that you can know if this is how you're living One way you can know, if you're kind of pursuing the Christian life as Paul recommends, one way you can know if Christ is the center of your universe, and if you're living life in the same way you received life, one way you could know is that you'll be overflowing with thankfulness. I want you to think about how many churches or preachers or religious leaders or even religious people who've taught you over your life, how many of them were overflowing with thankfulness and how many of them just made you feel guilty? And I don't know the answer to that, and I don't mean it to be a leading question. Maybe your answer is most of them were overflowing with thankfulness. And I say, that's yet another reason to be thankful. (laughs) But if you are in a situation where a leader or a church is saying that Christianity should make you feel burdened and guilty, or even if it makes you feel complacent, because that's not overflowing with thankfulness either. If it makes you feel burdened, it leads to licentiousness or guilt or complacency, whichever direction it goes, if it's not leading to the gratitude, it's an incorrect view of the gospel in some fashion. Because Paul says a correct view of the gospel with Christ at the center of the universe leads to an overflowing of gratitude. Let's be honest. Again, if you're hearing this message and your response to it is, Dave's trying to make me feel guilty and condemned. You're misunderstanding what I'm trying to tell you. Because do I think that we're all overflowing with thankfulness all the time? Of course not. Am I? No, absolutely not. So I understand that. My point isn't work harder to overflow with thankfulness. My point is notice what leads to overflowing with thankfulness. See, a lot of times we take the fruit that God is wanting to see blossom in our life and instead of fixing the seed or the water or the nurturing or the soil that produces that fruit, we just try to produce different fruit. But if you're planting apple seeds and praying for tomatoes, you're not going to get it. So what he's saying here is, if you live your life with the same dependence and faith and submission, if you're counting on the grace of God, then part of that maturity will be an overflow of gratitude. And it becomes a way to know if you need to reorient. And if you need to reorient, just do. See, I think the Christian life is all about that too. It's not about I got it right now, I'm good. it's about, okay, I'm walking the Christian life, and every once in a while I recognize, oh, I'm not overflowing with gratitude. Wonder why not? Oh, Christ isn't the center of my universe. let's reorient. You know it's interesting we, we uh, Lee read the passage in Corinthians about communion tonight, and I had her stop. there's one verse that, that comes after that I had her stop because when we read that verse people get confused but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it is because I think in this context it makes sense the verse that comes after what she read says something it's a warning about not taking communion wrongly don't take it wrongly when I was um, young pastor my first three years I had a, a member of my church who didn't like me and that is not an exaggeration or me being defensive he literally did not like me Uh, for reasons that had nothing to do with me, but which I probably also helped further. Um, But he didn't like me, and he didn't like the way I led church, and he didn't like the messages I preached, and he didn't like the way I did things. And one of the things we did is we did communion every Sunday morning before church. We would gather for communion before church even started. We did it every Sunday morning. And one day he came in, and he said to me, uh, and again, he was constantly coming to me with critiques and criticisms, and I tried to Tried to take what was true and leave the rest. And that got harder and harder to figure out what that was as time went on. But he came to me at one point and he said, because he, he used to come to that communion time. And he said, he pulled that verse out. And he said, we're taking communion wrongly. And I said, how? You know, what, what is it that you're seeing that feels like we're treating it? Because the idea in that verse is that the attitude, it's not even the mechanics. It's don't come to the communion table with the wrong attitude. And I said, well, what, are, what are you thinking? And this is what he said. He said, there's too much celebration and not enough solemnity. Now, we weren't like wearing party hats and blowing noisemakers at communion. <laughs> we were doing it much the way we do it here. <laughs> and I said, I don't understand. And he said, communion isn't something that should be taken, frankly, with joy. And I said, now I really don't understand. And this was his idea that to take communion appropriately meant to take it with guilt for what Jesus had done. Now, I think there is a degree of solemnity that can certainly go with communion. And when you come to communion, if that's where your heart is, you run with it. There's certainly a sense of awe and a sense of, wow, God did a lot. But I think that Jesus, more than anything, wants us to come to communion with a sense of gratitude with a sense of humility and recognition that what he's done for us is, in fact, amazing. You know, I've said this before. I just don't think, I think some of us have a picture of Jesus and when we get to heaven, he's going to welcome us in and he's going to say, come on in. And he's going to say, let's eat together. And we're going to be like, this is awesome. And we're going to sit down to eat. And the entire conversation for the rest of eternity is going to be Jesus saying, you know how painful that cross was? I mean, have you really thought about How hard that was. It's like that stereotypical, you know, mother who's like, do you have any idea how long I labored with you? You know, the fact is, we joke about moms like that, but that isn't something moms talk about a lot, to be perfectly honest with their kids. At least not the ones I know. Because there's such joy in it for them. There's such joy behind the pain. And Jesus is not going to for a second say, I want to make sure you understand how painful this was. You know, he just wants us, to recognize, it, accept it, love it, and 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 embrace the joy and the gratitude that comes from it. That's how we should take communion. So he goes on after saying, "Look, see to it, see that." So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in, strengthened in the faith, overflowing with thankfulness. And then he says this: See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Here's the essence. Here's the reason Paul's writing this book. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. We talked about this idea of hollow philosophy last week when we said the only thing that makes a philosophy not hollow is that it's got substance in the middle, and that's Christ. (laughs) He's the center. Everything else is hollow. And I've noticed that hollow philosophies tend to hollow us out. They tend to leave us feeling emptier than they did before we embraced them. They make us feel good for a while, and then after a while, they leave us with nothing. And Paul says, just be careful about that. Commit to not being taken captive. It's a trap. It captures you through hollow and deceptive philosophies. But then he says this, these philosophies depend on, they count on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world to make you well, to make you whole, to bring redemption. You remember that hope of glory we talked about last week? He's saying if your hope of glory is not Christ in you, then your hope of glory is going to be something else and it will be hollow. Whatever you think is going to fix the world, whatever you think is going to make the world right, if it's based on human traditions, you are out of luck. Again, we have an advantage over every, hist- every person in history who comes before us in that we have every person in history who's come before us. We have thousands of years of human traditions failing to make everything okay. We have every political color that you can imagine, every philosophical bent, every economic position and I'm not saying they're all the same, some are better than others, but none of them have produced utopia. Do we agree? Because if they had, why aren't we all there? (laughs) None of them have. Human traditions will not lead us there. And there's all sorts of religions based on human traditions which have not led us there. Even the precepts of Christianity, the teachings of Christianity, the concepts and ideas of Christianity, I think they're helpful to our lives. I think they increase the likelihood of happiness. But those ideas themselves... Do not fix the world. They don't fix you. He talks about the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Some of us are more mystically minded, and maybe there's things we've tried, whether it's the secret or or transactional analysis or 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 meditation with a with an idea to changing, or you know, the, there may be other religions. There may be other sort of elemental spiritual things you look to that also are not going to fix the world because of their hollow and deceptive nature. And of course, he's including in this Gnosticism, which is a hollow and deceptive culture. And i got to say, by the way, I just think we're seeing a resurgence of Gnosticism, both in its literal form and, if I may say, most of the conspiracy theories that people embrace are just Gnosticism and in another guise. I think we would do well to avoid those. As Paul says, avoid quarrels, about genealogies and conspiracies. So what is the bottom line is this. Don't depend on any philosophy. Depend on Christ. Don't depend on any philosophy, even if they attach it to Christ. Even if they say, this is the other thing we love to do. We all love to claim Christ, right? I mean, if, if the whole world is to be believed from all the books I've read, Christ is a Marxist and a capitalist, which is tough. He's a feminist, and he's a patriarch, also tough. You know, Christ, we all adopt him. He's, he's neoconservative, he's neoplatonic, and he's Aristotelian, which is tough. He's all these things because we want to attach our philosophies to him so then we can claim we're, we're counting on Christ when what we're really counting on is our philosophy and simply attaching his name to it. This is what makes Christianity Christianity. We don't depend on just the teachings of Christ. Are the teachings beautiful, important, relevant, true, and life-changing? Yes, because they come from God. But we don't depend on those because those teachings themselves don't change who we are. They don't redeem our sinful nature. Only Christ himself does that. When I was in college, and we'll close with this, when I was in college, I, I, I had a conversation with someone from the Baha'i movement. The Baha'i is a, a religious movement which, is, which has some interesting ideas. And, but one of the things they do, they'll tell you when they encounter you, they'll ask you what religion you're in. And when you tell them, they'll say, well, good, because Baha'i accepts that. So just, we'll just, because what Baha'i wants to do is simply merge all these religions together. What they say is we want to take the best from every religion, and use that. Sounds good when you first think about it. So they say, for example, did you know that almost every religion in the world says, don't kill people? I I bet you aren't even shocked to know that. I mean, doesn't that just seem like that would be probably true? (laughs) Yeah, yes, it is true. Did you know that most religions in the world say something like the golden rule? Treat other people as you want to be treated. Again, are you really surprised to hear that? Couldn't we even have figured that one out, maybe? Maybe. But he said to me, so why don't we just take all those teachings and those other teachings, put them together, take out all the stuff you guys disagree on. And I said to him, that sounds really good and probably would make an interesting culture and probably fairly productive when I said, here's the only problem. I said, you want to take the best of Christianity, you're mistaken about what it is. It's not the teachings of Christ. It's Christ himself. So if we can take Christ as the best of Christianity and without losing that, merge it with everything else, I'm with you. And he immediately said, no, 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 can't do that. Just his teachings, not him as the redeemer, the hero, the savior, the Messiah. I said, well, that is the best of Christianity. And that's why the other religions will let you do that. But that's why Christianity can't. He goes on, he says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. We're going to talk about this in the coming weeks. It's an interesting statement. In fact, what we're going to do now is I'm going to close by reading the rest of this paragraph. And no doubt, some of it will go like this, because that's Paul. (laughs) We're going to come back to it in future weeks and break it down a little bit. But I want to read it because I want you to hear again how central Christ is to it. We'll make this our benediction, and we'll close here. He, that is Christ, is the head over every power and authority, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but a focus church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens, that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.